Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to the 33rd episode of Bold Leaders in Learning. Hard to believe it's already 33 in, uh, but I'm delighted to have uh, an old friend, Todd Hand, who is the managing director and founder of Knowledge Leaders. Todd and I go back literally to, technically speaking, last century. Uh, I think we first met in 1999. So, uh, so Todd, first of all, thank you for joining me on the show today. I would love you to just have uh, everybody hear a little bit more about your own background and a little bit about what Knowledge Leaders is doing, and then we'll, we'll dive into discussion from there. Brandon, great to be here. My oldest friend in the education sector. Um, so um, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I, I am the managing partner of a retained executive search firm called Knowledge Leaders. I've been in recruiting for over 25 years. The first 20 in general technology and in the last you know five or six in education we primarily uh, recruit executives into for-profit roles in the education sector the four quadrants or four buckets that we specialize in are the ece early childhood education market k-12 higher ed corporate learning corporate training so, I mean, that's, 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 that's the gamut, uh, you know, kind of cradle to, cradle to grave, so to speak, in terms of the uh, education sector, obviously, as you know, it across uh, companies and for-profit entities primarily. Uh, tell me a little bit about what's happening out there, right? Um, is there a dearth of top executive talent? Or is the type of talent that you're getting asked to recruit changing or shifting in any way? You know, has the pandemic thrown any particular uh, wrinkles or opportunities in the executive search business? I think the pandemic has changed everything. The question is, what changes will are everlasting? So, yeah. you know, there we, we've got clients and there are companies whose business is off the charts and exploding uh, because of the pandemic and everybody's on, all the kids are online. And, but there will be some type of reset button in the hopefully not too distant future where everybody's back in you know, class and um, not online as much. And so some of those revenues will come, you know, the, the tide will recede a little bit and some of those revenues will come down. It's also a story of feast or famine. You know, there, are, there are sectors in the education sector. You, know, you and I were talking about the pathways. Um, I know that you guys are doing well in that space, but you're maybe the exception. Um, you know, there's a lot of um, international student pathway companies that are really struggling um, during the pandemic, and it'll, it'll be a while before they come back. Yeah, and I would think so. Obviously, you know, some, some of your clients, as you, as you mentioned, growing, others, uh, you know, having difficult years, that, that, you know, that changes the dynamics of the kinds of uh, roles you're probably hiring for. I'm curious, you know, when you think about executive search and interview processes, you know, these are things that usually involve, I mean, especially if it's a C-level or near C-level role, usually involves board members uh, in the interview process, right? In addition to your, you and your team, uh, you're doing all this virtual still? Like, is this entirely Zoom? Are people still, you know, flying into airports and meeting in hotels? How, how much of that in-person, uh, live in-person aspect is still, still part of it? It is almost exclusively virtual. Hmm. And the dynamics are that we actually find that we can get more done and move the process along a little faster because people's schedules are more available. 
Right. And um, it doesn't entail getting plane tickets and hotels, et cetera, and then making sure that everybody's all in one place at one time to do you know, the, the, the second and third stage interviews. Uh, Zoom has made it more efficient. Early on, April, May, and June, people were less comfortable with making decisions, hiring executives and CEOs and, and board members. But you know, we're doing this, what, November 19th, and people are more accepting, more comfortable making decisions, never having met the, the, you know, the executive or the incoming CEO. I mean, geez, we, we've done heads of HR, we've done CEO searches where they, and they've been on board for months and they have yet to meet anyone at the company face-to-face. Uh, it's fascinating. I mean, I, I, I'm just guessing if I had asked you a year ago, you know, would, would, would your whole business move to virtual at any point ever? I mean, I don't know. I don't know what you would have said, but my guess is you would have been like, never. Uh, but like, based on what you're saying, it sounds like people are getting more comfortable with this, right? Is this going to be one of those lasting effects of the pandemic as fewer of these flying, you know, meetings and just more hiring done on, uh, on Zoom? I, I think so. And I think it really, it's, it's the, the client comfort level that has really gotten there. Um, so we, we kind of follow the clients and even, you know, quote unquote, uh, old school clients, you know, board members yeah. and CEOs that, you know, have, have, you know, always like to look at someone face to face and feel the handshake and so forth. Even they are becoming more accepting and more comfortable with it. I, I really do think it's going to change going forward that, um, you know, we, we, we joke that the, the one meeting plane flight um, may be a thing of the past, you know, where you, you're in Chicago, you fly into Dallas, you have a meeting, and then you fly back to Chicago. That is just easier done over Zoom. So we, you know, we, we think that it will change and it will make things more efficient. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to think about. I mean, I, you know, I think of all the airplanes that I usually get on, and I've been on a plane since March 2nd, as I mentioned to you, but I feel like I've been more productive than I was in the airplane days, ironically, Obviously, there's been large, widespread acceptance, you know, forced and, and now, you know, kind of accustomed over time to the idea of, you know, doing conversations uh, on video. But, you know, right now, if I wanted to go visit a university, no, no they'd be like, no, no, please don't come. You know, we'll, we'll just do a Zoom call. So it, it really is fascinating to think about how some of these things are going to shift. And, um, you know, I'm curious, too, right? You've, you know, you've been in this uh, search business for a long time. You've done a lot of hiring over the, let's just say the last, you know, 20 years, right? Is there a substantive difference in the style or the capabilities of the leaders that you're hiring on average? I mean, I, I obviously assume it varies by industry and certain things like that, but is there, has there, has there been a, a major change from your perspective in the, the type of leadership attributes that you're looking for, that organizations are asking for, or has it remained pretty consistent? I think it's remained consistent. We do very, you know, defined, it's almost like rifle target searches, where we spend a lot of time up front identifying the, the traits, the responsibilities, the experiences, the tools that the executive needs to have on day one. So the general attributes, like, I mean, there was there are, there are fads that come and go 
20 years ago. I think it was right after the movie A River Runs Through It came out. Everybody wanted to put fly fishing as an interest and activity on their resume. And you know, <laughs> that, that was a fad. Um, so I, I think it's consistent. I do think that the clients have gotten more savvy and more sophisticated on assessing executives. So I think that in uh, a pet peeve of mine is that I don't like buzzwords and cliches. You know, the MBA speak, um, and our clients don't either. So when a candidate comes in and is just regurgitating the, the, the cliches, the buzzwords that he or she thinks makes them sound smart, those candidates usually don't get, don't get very far in the process. Interesting. So the ROI and the net net is we should, you know, make sure we stay away from that stuff, huh? Well, it is, it's an overused word, um, authentic, but uh, really, and you can't fake it. And, and yeah. so I, we have a lot of clients that want someone who is a real person, a real independent thinker, someone who's authentic and not just repeating things that they heard. Yeah, it makes sense. And, and obviously you feel like you were able to assess that in a, you know, a video based environment as well as a, an in-person environment. I'm curious, you know, you and a lot of the roles you're hiring, you know, they're roles that are kind of leading indicators for where these organizations are trying to go, right? They've got a major new strategic initiative. Therefore, they're looking for a new hire to kind of fill that role or help them go in that direction. Uh, I know you can't speak about individual clients, obviously, but as you look at the horizon of the education sector, uh, what, are, what are some of the exciting things that you think are going to happen uh, on the horizon, different, say, than the past, right? Um, do, you, do, you, do you sense there's going to be some major movements in certain directions? It, it comes and goes, and there are trends. For example, two years ago, there was a run on heads of product, chief product officer. And we did a ton in a space of like 18 months, but not so much lately. One of the consistent, so keep in mind that half of the positions that we work on are newly created roles. Interesting, yeah. And generally it's around revenue. It's around growth. You know, these are private equity backed companies that are selling into the education markets and they are creating roles of chief revenue officer. Um, they are combining marketing and sales together and they're bringing in a chief sales officer. So these are, it's, it's all about growth and it's all about revenue. Yeah, but I mean, so it, it is interesting. There have been some phases where, like your, your point about a chief product officer, you, you do see some, you know, some trends, albeit, you know, potentially brief. I'm curious what has happened in, uh, in your world, and maybe you can speak more broadly to the, to the HR uh, marketplace around this. But, you know, obviously the, the country this year has been grappling with a whole bunch of really difficult challenges, pandemic being one. Uh, the other is, you know, social unrest and, and very specifically, the movement around Black Lives Matter. Um, how how has that influenced what you're hearing from clients? You know, there there uh, I would assume there's an increased interest in 
diversity talent hires. Uh, and I'm just curious what, uh, what you're hearing and seeing from the marketplace in that respect. We started to see this three or four years ago. And now every client, every search is requiring a diverse candidate pool in the pipeline. Now it's yep. still a meritocracy. They still want to hire the, the most qualified candidate, but we have, and we have a world-class research department and we know a lot of the executives in the education space. And we make a point in the first call with a potential client of laying out exactly how, we just don't talk the talk, but exactly how we will provide a diverse candidate pool in the pipeline. And that sometimes includes not, not just diverse in gender, et cetera, but sometimes that also includes diverse in backgrounds. Yep. One third of all of our searches are filled with a candidate from outside of education. Interesting. Now, yep. some, some roles, they, they really, so heads of sales in K-12, most of the time needs someone who understands the K-12 market. It's a very quirky, unusual market. Yeah. Um, with some exceptions, but most of the time, they really want someone from that background. But, you know, for example, we're doing some CEO searches right now where we're looking for leaders that came from B2C. And so they could come from retail. They could right. come from healthcare um, because the client sells a B2C service or education product. And, and so a diverse background, diverse industry is important in those searches. Yeah, on that point, you know, I think of, uh, I, I was in a transition talk about colleges and universities and college president searches, which I know you haven't been involved in, but I'd, I'd love to get your take on it. Uh, you know, I think of somebody like Scott Pulsifer, who's the president of Western Governors University. Uh, he was an executive at Amazon, right? And so, you know, certainly came from outside of the traditional kind of university pathway, but obviously a real focus on serving a customer, being responsive to the customer or student from that perspective. So that was a, you know, obviously they're, they're a unique institution, but a unique leadership background, which has proven to be pretty successful. You know, there's going to be a, a major set of retirements in higher ed that that's already begun. If you look at the average age of college presidents, uh, we're going to see a wave of retirements, you know, this year and in the next coming years. And of course, the college president uh, role, you know, if you think of the traditional pathway to it, it's really, uh, it, it hasn't always been this, but it's, it's typically been this. It's a faculty member who rises up the ranks and becomes a dean, potentially then provost, right? And it's, it's a provost to president type of pathway for most of these hires. Um, with all the challenges that are facing higher ed, the need for innovation, the need to, you know, in some cases, uh, move quickly, right? Get, get outside of a uh, you know, kind of a, a stagnated kind of decision-making process, financial challenges for these institutions. Uh, it really, you know, you could argue it requires a different type of leadership. And it's not to say that someone through that provost track couldn't become one of those. Uh, you know, we can think of Michael Crow, who was, uh, you know, a, pro a provost at an Ivy League institution before Arizona State. Um, obviously, one of the more innovative college presidents out there today. But what would be your advice and thoughts on how colleges 
who are starting new presidential searches should think about this, right? I would love to hear your, 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 uh, your guidance on that. Well, so you mentioned that we, we don't do college president searches. So I wanna state that up front. Yeah, fair. But I still wanna, I wanna get your, I wanna get your guidance though. But I'll give you a couple things that I would look at. And number one is, will this pandemic significantly change the paradigm of higher ed permanently? And I, I think it might. So higher education as we all knew it, when you went to Duke and I went to Penn State, will look different going forward. And that's a prediction, it's not a, it's not a guarantee, but I, I do think that this will, just as we were saying how the interview process has changed you know, with Zoom, yeah. higher ed, you know, the walls where someone you know, goes to, for example, Penn State and only takes classes at Penn State and has to go on campus and is there in State College, Pennsylvania, you know, those, that, that paradigm has changed. So one thing to look at is will future college presidents be able to change with the paradigm or will they simply just follow the path that their predecessors did and try to manage and lead schools with the old paradigm. So I think that there's an argument and, and we get this a lot from clients where they say we want an outside thinker. You know, we, you know, if it's a if it's a education service that sells into the consumer, so it's a B2C play, they are interested in hiring people from outside of education because they want to learn how other paradigms work, how other uh, companies outside of education are successful, yeah. how, how they're not successful. So I think that college and universities should populate their candidate list with some talent outside of education. Doesn't mean that, but they, they need to at least explore that and be open to it because the old way may never come back. Yeah, I think that's that's an important message, uh, and I don't I don't know that that's necessarily happening, right? I mean, you're certainly you know you're hearing stories every now and then of kind of a uh, I'll call it a non traditional college president hire, but you know they're they're few and far between, and and that that's one of the you know that's one of the things that I think you know higher ed has been reticent to do, right? Is to think about hiring from you know, outside the academy entirely, right? Um, so that's going to be that's going to be a challenge. But that's a challenge for boards of trustees to wrap their arms around. It's a challenge for faculty, right, who are going to be uh, largely reticent to candidates that don't have you know strong academic backgrounds, so to speak. Uh, but I but I think you're right. I think they need to be making sure that just as they're thinking about all the different facets of diversity in their talent pool. They think about people who are coming from fundamentally different areas uh, and you think they'd want to learn from it too, right? If nothing else, interview candidates that are going to give you those perspectives in a way that might actually guide your strategy, whether you hire that person or not. I'm curious on that question, how many times do you think a hiring process uh, you know, gave a company or an organization better insights and guidance on where it should go, not by who they hired, but by all the people they interviewed do you think they're learning from the people they interview in terms of where their direction ultimately goes or not really? The smart ones do it all the time. Interesting. 
we, when we launch a search, we spend the first two weeks really peeling back the onion on the profiles. And I make that plural for a specific reason that we want to target. Often after four to five weeks where the client is viewing candidates, seeing our notes and, and, and getting to know the marketplace of candidates, the, their judgment, their assessment, and sometimes the profile evolves based upon what they're hearing from candidates that know this space really well. Yeah, yeah. We don't want it to evolve too much, <laughs> right. uh, but uh, you know, and, and sometimes when we launch a search, the, the client will say, I want to, I don't know much about this space. You know, we're, we're talking with a, a company in Europe that wants to open up a U.S. presence and they don't know the U.S. market very well, but they know they want to be here. Yeah. And so one of the criteria is for us to introduce that European client to lots of really smart talent here in the U.S., that they can learn from through the interview process to make the right hire. Yeah, so I mean, so it, it becomes a real, real strategy when you, you when you think about it that way. And uh, I mean, I guess in some cases you you could uh, you could end up not hiring anybody and still still learn a lot about the market. Like for example, you might decide you don't want a U.S. presence after something like that if it was uh, particularly poignant feedback that you were getting from various folks. Sometimes we have searches where there are internal candidates giving the client an opportunity to meet outside talent helps them decide whether that internal candidate is the right person for the job. Oftentimes they end up hiring the outside talent, hmm. but every once in a while they decide after meeting a bunch of talent from the outside, wow, you know, the, the, the grass isn't really greener on the other side of the fence. And we have a, a, a potential star here on, on board already. Yeah, that's interesting. So uh, what, what roughly are the percent of hires that you end up doing that were an internal candidate uh, out of those searches? I mean, is it, is it small percentage? It's a, it's a small percentage uh, because we, we take it as a challenge. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, we're very competitive. So we, we, we assess the internal candidate and then we know, okay, we, we need to introduce talent that's, you know, better than the internal candidate. It's, and, and, that, and the client loves to hear that. And it's a, it's a win-win. Yeah, that's fascinating. So now, now I want to I ask you some questions now. Uh, I want to get into a little bit of the secret sauce. You've, uh, I don't know, what, what's your rough estimate? How many people have you interviewed in your, in your career? Give me, give me a rough tally. It's, it's probably over 10,000. <laughs> so you're at, you're at the classic Malcolm Gladwell rule of 10,000 interviews. All right. So, so I'm, I'm speaking with a guru here. Uh, tell me what some of your favorite questions are to ask people. I have an ongoing debate with a colleague of 25 years and he is very scientific. So he loves the tests he loves the, the, you know, the, the, the very tangible things. And I have always been from the school of gut feel. And we have this ongoing debate and he thinks that I'm crazy 
and um, and uh, he feels he thinks his scientific method is head and shoulders better. And it's it's a fun it's a fun discussion. Um, for the life of me, I can't move. I'm not all gut feel, but I can't move all the way over to the scientific because I, I I think it fails the test of reverse engineering. Tell me about I've that. Seen, what do you mean? I've seen too many false positives and false negatives okay. from testing. Okay. To totally trust it. Now we do some of that, but we coach our clients that it is simply a data point. It is not a all encompassing indicator on whether someone would be successful. So I, so that said, I like to, when I talk to candidates and sometimes I'm brought in towards the end of the process to do my assessment of candidates, the client wants my take. I like number one, conversational interviews. And I like to hear what people think about what they see. I like unconventional thinkers. So this goes back to the, the cliches and buzzwords. I pick up on that really quickly because those aren't thinkers. I want people to assess the process, assess the client, assess the opportunity, assess, assess the potential. I wanna hear it in their own words because we're looking for people that can take in data, take in information, assess people, and then come up with a conclusion analysis. That's a lot about leadership. Yeah. And understanding that some of the information you take out will be, will be false. So how do you sift through the false information to use the accurate information in order to make analysis and pick directions? Yeah, that, that's helpful. I mean, your, uh, your comment about the, you know, false positives and false negatives from the testing world. I mean, obviously you're speaking about executive recruitment world, which, you know, you could argue these kinds of assessments that have been designed and utilized there are some of the most exhaustive, comprehensive, lengthy. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've seen some of these things and been familiar with, with several of them, uh, especially dating back to my Gallup days where Gallup was involved in a lot of those uh, assessments as well. But you made me think about standardized testing when you said that, right? Uh, you know, we're not talking about executive search here, but we are talking about identifying unique talent in schools. Uh, my guess is you, you probably have an opinion about what, uh, what kind of activity, you know, testing and grades have relative. So if you were going to be a college recruiter right now, I'll turn the question around, right? How, how would you look for a top talent right out of college, right? I mean, you, are you looking at grades and test scores or are those things just a, a small sliver of the bucket as well? I think there's a real opportunity for college, colleges and universities to upgrade their testing and admissions department. Interesting. Uh, Tell us more. My son is a freshman at the University of Arizona. And through the last couple of years, his classmates who have applied for and been rejected at certain college universities I scratch my head. I mean, some of these kids are so talented. Some of these kids are so smart. They're so good. They've got a ton of character. They're hardworking and they were rejected by a university. And I'm thinking, what was going on in the admissions department? How did they miss that? How did yeah. they miss this kid who is, if I was 
head of a college, that's the kid I want at my university. How did they miss that? So I think there's a real opportunity at getting their admissions department more sophisticated, more sharp. Um, I, I, I wonder if a lot of these admissions departments are just going through the motions and they're in there and it's the you know the least amount of effort to look at a number look at a gpa look at a at a sat or act score and they're they're just they're just making the donuts instead of really looking for you know diamonds in the rough superstars now yeah the, the devil's in the details how do you do that but i, I think right. you have to have a passion for it i think you have to commit and if I was head of a university, I would, I would want my admissions department to be better than every other admissions department in the country. Yeah, and part of that is probably going to require going outside of the, you know, the traditional metrics that are utilized in that process, right? I mean, it is a sort in some form of GPA and test scores. It's a sort on what types of high schools that admissions department has had prior relationships with and some pipeline or track record of assessing the students that have come from those high schools. So I just how much got done. does well, how yeah. much does legacy? I mean, the, oh. the legacy problem. I mean, the, sure. the who knows who, yep. donors, kids. I, I don't. I'm just asking the questions. I haven't opened up that Pandora's box, but I, I wonder how much of that plays into it. Yeah, no doubt. I, I just finished reading Jeff Salingo's new book on a year inside college admissions and. There's all kinds of things that end up at the end of the day for the individual student who's applied uh, being incredibly arbitrary. Like, oh, we've already got a student from New Mexico this year, so we're good on that. We're not gonna look at any other kids from New Mexico, right? Like, that, like th that's it. They hit their quota for New Mexico. So, you know, Jake's out because, you know, he's from New Mexico, right? So it's all those kinds of things that I think people will never understand. But I think beyond some of the inherent challenges in the current system, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of talent that's being missed because they aren't digging a little bit deeper into some of the unique attributes of that. I mean, an essay might tell you something, but how much are you getting at somebody's kind of character analysis through, you know, a short form essay? I mean, you know, it, it's really, well, it's very hard but, to do. And you don't even you know, know if they were coached on the essay or if they even wrote the essay. So you know. look, this is a very complex problem. But it, I think it is the competitive, it's, it's, an, it's an opportunity to make this a competitive advantage for any head of university or college because the rest of the country's schools are not doing it well. Yeah. So it's just like a sports team. They have to have a good draft year after year after year. They have to have a good talent department. They have to be able to spot talent and diamonds in the rough. And I, it just—it seems to me it would be just a tr tremendous competitive advantage. Well, look, I think that's a great place to end. I think that's your book that you're going to write, uh, and I think that might be an extension of Knowledge Leaders' uh, new business offering for next year. And I'll, I'll be happy to help you out with it, Todd. So, are you offering um, to ghostwrite that book for me? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I'll be happy to write an intro or give you a plug for it, but that's about as far as I go. <laughs> Hey, well, well, thank you, my friend, for joining me. Uh, I appreciate hearing some of your insights and uh, look forward to, to staying in touch here. Uh, and thanks, everybody, who joined us live today. It was, uh, it was great to have you with us. It's always great to talk with you, Brandon. All right. Thanks. Take care, sir.